The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Scorebox. The S&P hits its 47th record close of the year as weekly jobless claims ease for a third straight week. But factory prices come in hot. It's onward and upward for Disney in a whole new post-COVID world. Shares pop after hours in the third quarter, beating across the board as streaming subscriptions double. We decided early on in the pandemic, rather than to put it in neutral and see what happens, to step on the gas. Step on the gas on the two biggest initiatives that we have going on in the company. China partly closes down the world's third largest port over COVID fears, hitting an already stretched global supply chain. Elsewhere, Adidas finally offloads sports subsidiary Reebok, selling to Authentic Brands Group for just over 2 billion euros, 1 billion less than it paid 15 years ago. Spain's top flight football clubs approve a 2.1 billion euro investment by private equity group CBC, despite Real Madrid and Barcelona opting out at the last minute. There's been a huge focus on the data of the United States this week. Uh, inflation, the read that we had earlier on, suggesting that still a heady pace of growth in those pricing pressures, but not accelerating past the previous month. Now the attention swinging to the latest on the jobs front as the U.S. initial jobless claims fell for the third week in a row, coming in at 375,000 as the U.S. economy continues to lift itself out of COVID crisis. It follows last month's bumper jobs report, which saw larger-than-expected employment gains and a record number of job openings. The number of continuing jobless claims also fell to 2.86 million, which is the lowest level since the onset of the pandemic, Jeff. Yeah, Karen, thanks very much indeed for that. Let's um, take a look at how we finished up the session then in the United States yesterday. Clearly, uh, we had a positive close. And again, we're banging up against these uh, all-time highs for some of these indices. And interesting that the Nasdaq also joined in in the gains yesterday. Uh, The um, Treasuries are fascinating in the context of this slew of uh, price-related data that we've seen recently. And as you look at the uh, 10-year yield here, you do just get the sense that the market is just adjusting at the moment to these price pressure rises. Although I would say that in terms of the moves, there is still a, I don't know whether you want to call it complacency or a realism, depending on which side of the ledger you are on inflation at the moment, whether you think it's transitory or whether you think it's going to be stickier, you could argue that actually the uh, Treasury curve hasn't quite fully priced in the uh, the worst case scenario in terms of interest rate hikes and tapering 
that could uh, ultimately come down the channel if indeed these inflationary pressures appear stickier than expected. And as Karen was pointing out, you know, in the recent data, we're also seeing uh, not only uh, price moves, but we're also seeing improvements in the employment data. But I just wanted to focus on that PPI number for a second here, because at 7.8% year on year, it does indicate that there are pricing pressures for companies and industries that ultimately will have to be passed on to the consumer. The question you have to decide for yourself as you invest in equity markets is, will these companies take it on the chin and cut their margins, or will they push it through to the consumer and ultimately by, spend, by squeezing consumer spending, will that shorten the post-COVID economic rebound? number of things to weigh up there. While we're on the subject uh, of inflation, let's just pop up the dollar crosses. And I, I wanted to put this up. I think this is a, a very interesting period we're in. Obviously, it's reminiscent of other periods where we've seen high government spending. We've seen pressure around currencies. We've seen pressure on government balance sheets. And with that in mind, let me just point out to you, it is 50 years almost to the day when Richard Nixon decided with a cabal of advisers to take the American dollar off the gold standard. Now, that was a pivotal moment. And for those of you of an Austrian bent who like the idea of hard currencies, that was probably the last reckless decision that we saw from the Nixon administration. Um, if you take a look at where we are on uh, government debt balances uh, subsequent to that decision 50 years ago, you get a very clear line on the chart that shows that those government debts started to rise very rapidly as governments realised they could use central banks and other means to continue to borrow money as they spent. And, uh, of course, it helped the politicians stay in power. But there was one other aspect that gets less attention in that decision-making process with uh, Arthur Burns and uh, Paul Volcker. They were all in the milieu around uh, President Nixon at the time. And it is the wages and incomes policy that also happened at the same time. It was part and parcel of that coming off the uh, dollar gold standard. And are we going to go back to that? Because when governments finally lose faith in the ability of interest rates and central banks to change that inflationary mindset, what they end up then doing is implementing crude policies to, to try and suppress wages, to try and suppress pay, to get inflation back under control. And unfortunately, the experience of the 70s is that they rarely work. You see the same kind of thing going on in China today. Will they work any better in China? We will have to wait and watch. There we are on the dollar with 138 uh, sterling dollar. Dollar yen, as you can see, the green back in the driving seat just on the Japanese currency. What about WTI, Brent and gold then? We talked a little bit about the gold uh, standard. Uh, not that relevant, I guess, in terms of where we are on today's spot price. But we are a little bit firmer here. And again, 
Uh, it does tie back into the inflation story because it's kind of squirrely having to try and manage this idea of rising price pressure and dollar debasement. And arguably, it's why Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are getting a bid. And it perhaps explains why uh, gold still continues to be reasonably well supported around these $1,700 levels. Um, where are we going on end user demand? The IEA, uh, you flipped on a little bit quickly there, Rod, for me, but the IEA yesterday talking about uh, lower demand going forward, perhaps for oil and energy, and that just took some of the momentum off the crude and the WTI price. Uh, but we are, as you can see, still sitting around these $70 barrel marks. Um, Asian markets, we should have a look at the uh, Asian trading session. Uh, we uh, just see the Nikkei in positive territory here. But there's another very important story that Karen mentioned in the headline, and it's this third largest port in the world uh, being shut down because of COVID. We are all going to have to learn the Chinese words Ningbo Zhoushan. This is the uh, name of the port facility. And again, uh, for those in the transitory, these non-transitory camps, this is uh, another issue to weigh in that consideration about how sticky inflation is because it means supply disruptions are probably likely to run for a little longer here as the Chinese try and get their own COVID situation under control. So that's an updated print on where we are on these key Asian markets, Karen. Jeff, I guess in coming weeks we're all going to find out exactly what products go through the third largest port in China as we see those bottlenecks. But let's push on. Uh, we've been talking about the macroeconomic background in the United States, but in Germany also we've got one company very much fixated on the direction, and that is Deutsche Wohnen. This is a very large landlord in Berlin. Uh, the company has 154,000-plus residential properties that it uh, manages, about uh, almost 3,000 commercial units. And it's been in the headlines of late because of a takeover battle by rival Vanovia, with some shareholders claiming that uh, what has been offered up is not enough at this stage to convince shareholders. Uh, about a week ago so far, we got to about uh, 53 euros per share. That was the offer that was tabled. And the company today also talking about that in its earnings release, playing a fairly straight bat, just explaining what has already been offered to shareholders, not commenting much further on the takeover battle. But if you look at the earnings from the company, you can see uh, in the numbers today that there's still a challenge in the business. They have produced uh, a better number on earnings after tax for the first half at 256.4 versus 216.7 same time a year ago. Uh, the company, though, if you look at uh, what it's posted on the actual revenue print and some core lines of the business, you can see the growth is slimmer than what it was same time a year ago in uh, key parts of the portfolio. So that is telling you about the ability of the company to continue to grow earnings at this stage. Uh, for instance, if you uh, consider the fact that the company has had rental freezes as well, this has gone to the courts to try and change the position. So the companies have been battling it out on a, a couple of different fronts around COVID exposure, but also social obligations too, to make sure it does not force people out of homes in the middle of a crisis. So uh, I would say the company is still growing, but uh, slimmer growth is what we're witnessing. And uh, just worth noting that uh, the company is talking about the forecast for the entire year now being confirmed.
uh, and uh, we will continue to watch the space on the takeover battle. But uh, speaking of earnings, uh, big earnings overnight from Disney and the shares jumping as a result, almost 6% in extended trade after the entertainment uh, giant cruised past expectations for third quarter results. Revenue and earnings per share comfortably topped forecasts, while the group's streaming service, Disney Plus, also beat estimates with 116 million subscribers. Disney's key uh, parks and experiences and products unit returned to profit for the first time since the onset of the pandemic, with all of its parks now open again. Speaking to CNBC, the CEO Bob Chapik outlined how Disney has eased visitor concerns at its parks. Take a listen. We have built up a history of consumer trust and confidence. When we opened up Walt Disney World back in the middle of the pandemic, there were a lot of doubters. But through things like the MBA experience that we had there and showed everybody in the world that we could operate responsibly in the midst of this pandemic. And we've been operating Walt Disney World now for about a year. And joining us now is Paul Derek Abedian, who is the senior media analyst at Comscore. Thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. As we rake through the numbers over at Disney, we can see subscribers are still going up, which is no doubt welcome news on the back of the pandemic, where we saw a lot of eyeballs switching on for in-home entertainment. But that said, the revenue that's attributed to these average users is going down because of the parts of the world that have been connected up now are lower revenue generating areas. Is this uh, detail that we're seeing from Disney acceptable to uh, investors at this stage as they weigh up the global ambitions of Disney? Paul, I'm not sure Paul's hearing me there. I think we seem to be having a problem with Paul's line. So we may just check back in with him in, in a moment. We'll make sure that line is good. But, uh, you know, key takeaway messages on the earnings was that we saw a fantastic amount of uh, additions, Jeff, that subscribers were still switching on to Disney+. Plus. And don't forget, we've seen an enormous amount of competition from all sorts of rivals coming to the space in the last 12 months or so. But uh, Disney still holding its head high when it comes to those people switching on to, uh, to watch the streaming service. I think it's fascinating. I mean, Disney's got a, a little battle going on with Scarlett Johansson at the moment about uh, where and when it releases new content, whether it goes straight to streaming or whether indeed uh, the cinemas get a decent run at it. Um, Karen, we were talking with the boss of Cineworld yesterday who suggested that they should get at least 45 days to be able to uh, give uh, first view of any content in the theatres before ultimately it goes to Disney Plus and their streaming service. But we'll see this one uh, work its way through mediation and the courts before we get some conclusion on that. But what I think it, it does do is raise some uh, further uh, questions about uh, how strong Disney Plus and its uh, subscriber momentum will be from here on in, given how they produced knockout numbers in this latest set of earnings. That's right. I think we've got Paul back with us now. So let me just toss the question back over to Paul again. Paul, we saw a fantastic addition of subscribers, but the average revenue per user was lower because of some of those uh, parts of the world that we are seeing connected up, the likes of Indonesia, where income is lower. And it's just making the point, is that acceptable to investors at this point as they consider the global ambitions of the company? Well, if you think about Disney Plus, and it's relatively new. I mean, it that launched in November of 2019, 
at the perfect time, really just ahead of when the pandemic hit and shuttered theaters in North America, at least in March of 2020. So they were well positioned to start putting their content out on the Disney Plus platform. Though it's interesting, with the 45-day theatrical window, I think we've seen that that plays well, that the theatrical first model is the good way to go, generally speaking, if you want to build that big box office. Plus, theatrical builds prestige and exclusivity so that when those films hit the streaming service, they are more embraced and more sought after, I think, by the consumer. Now, with Black Widow, of course, very famously, there's issues going on there with some saying, and, and certainly uh, Scarlett Johansson's camp saying that by having a day and date release, uh, it hurt the film's potential box office. And if you look at the numbers, you have to say, sometimes that bears out, sometimes not. It depends on the movie. It's a very complicated uh, situation with all these movies and really all the studios, including, of course, Disney, trying to figure out what is the best strategy for each and every one of their movies. It's always been a factor in the industry that the movie has enough appeal that people bother to go to the cinema and buy the popcorn and sit there and watch the movie versus waiting for it to be released in some other form, whether it was video back in the day or in a streaming service yeah. these days. But now it's a different fact as we talk about people waiting at home and not willing to pay that extra to access the early release on streaming. What's the magic uh, source here for these companies to try and get it right so they get either the in-ticket sales at the theatre or they get the money paid up front on the streaming service for the early release? Well, that's the multi-million or billion dollar question, and I think every studio is trying to figure that out. What I've seen in my experience that a theatrical first with a dynamic window, meaning that if a film isn't playing as well as was expected, over the ensuing weeks after its opening weekend, then keeping it in a theater doesn't do the theaters any good. They want to get new content in to drive people into the theater. But if it's a movie that's a blockbuster, I mean, you take Furious 9, for example. Now, of course, that's a universal picture. That's up to $661 billion worldwide, uh, excuse me, million dollars worldwide. And so that is a huge number for that film. And even though Furious 9 dropped 67% in its second weekend, uh, Black Widow dropped about the same 68%. The films that are only available in theater in the second, third, and fourth week, people have to go to the theater to see them. But streaming is a great play as well. For some movies, that's a great option. But I still think theatrical first, even if it's a shorter window, I think that's a really good play going forward. I think obviously that day and date model was accelerated by the pandemic. The adoption of that model was accelerated by the pandemic. Uh, and Disney Plus, though, well-positioned, considering the library of titles, also the new titles, Shang-Chi is coming up. And I think that one is going to be a big movie. That's going to be another big test. I think Chapek noted that that will be an interesting experiment of the 45-day window. And Disney has Free Guy from 20th Century opening this weekend. And that's theatrical first. That'll be another interesting experiment to see what plays best with the consumer. Paul, just reflecting on uh, Netflix second quarter, they lost 430,000 uh, subscribers yeah. in uh, the US and Canada. And that had everybody in our industry saying, well, 
have we now gone peak uh, as far as the pandemic is concerned? And is this a reflection of what happens once the economy reopens? We're not seeing that in these Disney figures yet. But as you say, the yeah. service is relatively new. But can we look at Netflix as a template for where we go in coming quarters for Disney? Or are they different stories? They're different stories. And that's the thing. Every one of these platforms and studios have different content. They have different ways of uh, you know, bringing that content to their subscribers. So you have subscription models, you have PVOD, you know, premium VOD, like a Disney Plus premium access for a movie like Black Widow, where you have to pay $30 extra uh, to get that movie, even though you're already subscribing. HBO Max, uh, you can get, you could have seen the Suicide Squad on there without a premium upcharge. Netflix is yet a different model. It's the Wild West out there. I mean, you've got so much, I think, consumer confusion going on because it's a, it's a great problem to have in a way because we have so much great content to absorb on our small screen, but there's so many services. And I think also consumers don't know, is this a premium model? Is this a subscription model? Where do I go from here? I want to see all this great content. The movie theater is in a way much more accessible in the sense of, you know, the movie is going to be in the theater. You go pay your ticket, you go in, you sit down, you have a good time. And you, after two hours, you come out. So that's a simpler model. And the numbers are more transparent. The box office numbers for theaters are released daily. Literally, Comscore, we are releasing those numbers every day, every weekend, month in, year in and year out. But with streaming, it's, a, it's harder to tell if a movie's a hit or a miss. Although with uh, Disney has been reporting in the opening weekend, they did it with Black Widow and Jungle Cruise, the earnings for the premium plus subscription. So it's very, very interesting. It's much more dynamic and complicated than it was before the pandemic, no question about yeah, it. Yeah, uh, talking of uh, complexity, when you when you actually burrow into the parks profitability, it turns out that it was merchandise and the products business ultimately that got them over the yeah. line on the parks business. So what does that yeah. what does that tell us at the moment about the coil spring potential once we get these parks fully reopened? Is there a message in this figure? I think there is the message that if you have great content that you can merchandise and it's popular content, you can take the entertainment, which is the movie or the show or the character, and then turn that into an actual piece of uh, physical merchandise that somebody can take home. So if you have people loving the content, the characters, and they want to bring them home, not just the movie, but a physical manifestation of those characters or the brand or the logo, and you put that on all kinds of merchandise, the sky's the limit in terms of what you can sell that for or how much you can sell of that. And that's a big deal. But remember too, you have to have something very popular. If you have a movie that's a big bomb, you're not necessarily going to sell a lot of merchandise. Or if you have a brand that's not popular, how are you going to sell that merchandise? But it all feeds into each other with the theme parks, the merchandise, the small screen, the big screen. I mean, for Disney, they're literally everywhere. So it's very, very uh, ambitious, of course. And, and going forward in this new world where the pandemic has accelerated all these models, we're just going to see a lot of change going on. But the bottom line is consumers want to be entertained. They want to go to the movie theater. We've seen that over the past few weeks, the 
the pandemic is certainly impacting some consumer confidence, of course. But I think if you look at drive-ins, how they did last year and even now, people want to go out to the big screen, but they also want to have great content at home. It's the industry trying to find an equilibrium there with what people, what the audience wants, what's best for the studio, the creatives, uh, and everybody below the line and above the line in this industry is looking at this because this is uh, the stakes, I should say, are incredibly high. So it's we're just going along for the ride net right now, and it's very, very interesting and dynamic indeed. Great to have you on the program, Paul. Thanks so much for, for being with us. Great and is to that be Apollo here. 13? Is that Apollo 13 behind you? It's, That's another great I think, I, hope, I think it's Apollo 11 back there. Oh. Uh, my dad worked on the space program, and uh, that's a Lego. It's actually a Lego Saturn V rocket. Wow, that is spectacular. And uh, what a great legacy to, to know your father worked yeah. on a space program. He that sure is did. brilliant. Yeah, it was very cool. That is brilliant. Good to, good to see you this morning, and thanks for hanging on for us. Uh, Paul Durga. Oh, and, and I'm sorry about the beginning. Where I, I don't know what was going on, but I'm so happy to have been here. Thank you. Oh, no, we'll, we'll take the blame for that. I don't know whose fault it actually was, but you have a <laughs> good day. Nobody's fault. It's we'll, all good. It's uh, all good. Hey, hey, let us, let us take this one. All right. Uh, good to <laughs> see you. Paul uh, Durga Median, the senior media analyst for Comscore, with a wonderful uh, uh, rocket behind him. Um, we're going to take the break. We'll be back in a few minutes. A few other things just to tell you about quickly before we get into the uh, advertis ad advertisements, advertising. Uh, we have uh, more on that CNBC interview with Disney's CEO, Bob Chapek. Uh, you can get his thoughts on Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit on CNBC.com, and we might play you that clip over the next couple of hours. Uh, still to come on the program, then, already stretched global supply chains take another hit as China shuts part of the world's third busiest port. And it's been a lively earnings season already with companies shrugging off the impact of the Delta variant. You can listen in to our Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The FDA has authorized a vaccine booster shot for people with weakened immune systems. White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci said data suggested immunocompromised individuals do not produce an adequate response after getting two jabs. The CDC's Vaccine Advisory Committee still needs to vote on the measure before it is fully introduced. Part of the world's third busiest port, China's Ningbo Joshan has been shut down after a worker tested positive for coronavirus. The move reflects Chinese authorities' zero-tolerance approach to the pandemic and is expected to place further strains on global supply chains. Uh, Sam has joined us and has more on the likely impact on this story. Sam, good morning. 
Good morning to you, Jeff. And you're absolutely right that it is putting China's zero COVID approach to the test because we've got to remember this is just one reported case so far and authorities are taking absolutely no chances, even if it does come at a huge economic cost because we are seeing a huge buildup of congestion over at Ningbo, but also in Shanghai after the key transportation or container terminal in Ningbo was shut down earlier uh, this week after a man who worked there tested positive for COVID-19 despite reportedly being fully vaccinated with the Chinese vaccine uh, that is Sinovac and that uh, ultimately forced the terminal which is uh, one of the busiest over in Ningbo to uh, to shut down its operations for a deep clean and that is certainly significant because as you pointed out the third busiest port in the world but actually uh, the largest by cargo tonnage it does serve the US and also your part of the world over in Europe uh, in terms of what goes through this terminal Uh, It's a major transportation hub for things like iron ore and crude oil, but also uh, for grain and coal. And so certainly the effects of this uh, will start to show in the next weeks or months, uh, certainly, and could have uh, huge implications for global shipping and the trading picture in these supply chains. We've already seen these uh, bottlenecks. According to uh, Refinitiv Shipping Data, 40 container ships uh, were already waiting outside the port yesterday. Uh, Waiting times are apparently one to three days now. Uh, Other terminals, I think it is important to point out, are still operating, but they are also facing restrictions in terms of limiting the number of people and also cargo that's able to pass through there. They are apparently trying to divert the ships to other terminals uh, to deal with this backlog. Some are actually being diverted to Shanghai as well, but the commercial hub around Shanghai is already facing huge amounts of congestion, actually the worst that it's seen uh, in about three years. So it is a bit of a mess. And of see the big concern here, Karen, is the economic cost of all of this. Uh, Sam, thank you very much for running us through the latest. I thought it was a delay getting into London the other day to Heathrow two hours, but not one to three days, which tells you the problem is at the port at the moment uh, in China. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.